Hello again, this is Jim Bartlett. Welcome back to my podcast. It's a companion to my website. The hits just keep on coming. I do not want to be one of those people who acts like he's the only person in the world to have experienced things that are actually quite common. Neither do I want to be one of those people who acts as though every experience of mine is universally significant simply because it happened to me. But at the same time, I'm a storyteller, and I like to think about what stuff means. This episode is called The Ravens, The Angels, and Me. In normal times, you do not want to go to the hospital. You definitely do not want to go to the hospital in COVID times. In normal times, you do not want to be in the ICU. You definitely do not want to be in the ICU in COVID times. I had to go to the hospital and be in the ICU during COVID times. The last time I was in a hospital overnight, it was when I was born and never since. This time, I was there five nights, four of them in the ICU. It wasn't for COVID. I had complications after a colonoscopy, which caused me to lose a lot of blood and my heart to go wonky for a while. It sucked, and I don't recommend it. But it was not an entirely negative experience either. What follows are some scenes from the long weekend, Thursday to Tuesday. I went to the emergency room first, right after dinner on a Thursday night, but I don't remember much about that part, beyond being surprised that I got to waltz right into a treatment room. I was sure I'd have to wait, because you always do. I didn't, because, as they told me later, my blood pressure had cratered due to internal bleeding. If we'd waited ten minutes to leave home for the ER, I might have needed an ambulance, and much longer, maybe a hearse. There wasn't much doubt that I'd need to go to the ICU. Around midnight, as Thursday turned to Friday, I got a CAT scan, and they decided to do what's called an embolization, in which they would go up an artery in my groin to zap some bleeding vessels in my colon. This was a job for the interventional radiologists. Their operating room was huge and cold and bright and noisy. Bright and noisy also applies to the interventional radiologists themselves. They were loose and loud, and music was blasting. I tried to get them to tell me if it was a local radio station, and if so, which one. It turned out to be one of the canned national formats that iHeartRadio runs in our town with a mix of 70s hits. It had probably been left on by a previous operating room crew because the songs were older than most of the interventional radiologists themselves. By the way, it does not matter that they were listening to a radio station that competes with one I work for. Matter of fact, I liked it and I'd listen to it again. I was partially sedated for the embolization procedure and I remember some of what happened in the operating room. Mainly that I was on a flat, narrow table with my gown hiked up and my privates in the wind. This is not the kind of thing that comes easily to me because I've always been physically modest. I hated showers in gym class. I do not wear form-fitting clothing, and you will never see me with my shirt off. But as I soon discovered, physical modesty dies in the hospital. For example, happy trails to my 56-year streak of being able to clean up after myself in the bathroom. At one point in the weekend, a nurse needed to move some of my heart monitor leads around, and I ended up simply dropping the gown entirely and standing there buck naked while she did it. Given that a hospital gown is a garment in the academic sense only, wearing one is as close as most of us will ever get to full-blown nudism. You want me to take my clothes off? Sure, give me a sec. Sometime on Friday, they put a catheter in me. I have never had one, I've always dreaded getting one, and I was not especially brave when getting mine. As a reasonable and prudent man, I try to avoid any inserting in that area. Also, I can report that when a catheter is involved, a sentence you never want to hear is, I'm going to have to try again with a different one. Once it's in, however, and after you get used to it, it's not terrible. When you're not capable of getting out of bed without help, which I was not, it's a blessing. I briefly entertained the thought of how convenient such a device would be on a barroom night. But that's crazy talk. 
Nowhere in the world is anyone more interested in urine than in the hospital. They still wanted to measure it on my last night after the catheter had been removed. The nurse said that I could use a urinal, which in this case is a plastic bottle with markings on the side that has a spigot into which you aim your Johnson. But then she gestured at the toilet and a little tray that sat at the front of the bowl, which is used most commonly by women. And she said, or you can go in the hat. It's called a hat, I asked. Yes, she said. Did I turn down the chance to pee in a hat? No, I did not. As I was packing up to be discharged the next morning, I bagged up the little things they'd given me. Toothbrush, comb, drinking mug with a plastic straw. The nurse asked, do you want to take your hat? No, I did not. The whiteboard in my room had the name of a doctor on it, and I presume that doctor had the ultimate responsibility for my case. But I saw that doctor one time in five days for about five minutes. As I look over the billing statements, I see the names of doctors I'm pretty sure I never saw at all. That said, I wish I'd kept track of exactly how many doctors did come to see me, because it was a lot. Between the ER docs, the interventional radiologists, and everybody who visited me in the ICU, it had to be 12 or 15. The hospital I was in is associated with the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, so interns and residents are thick on the ground. The doctors I saw the most often were three surgical residents who always came in a group. I nicknamed them the Ravens, after an image whose origin I can't determine. Something from mythology, maybe, or from a Disney or Warner Brothers cartoon made back in the 30s or 40s when cartoons nonchalantly included images that are nightmare fuel now. The image is a group of big black birds, ravens or crows or magpies or something, and they lurk at the back of the frame trying to get the attention of, and sometimes threatening, those in the front of the frame. For the better part of two days, and always in a group, the ravens would come into my room and hover. They were never anything less than professional and never anything less than cordial, if a bit distant in that way doctors have. They would ask questions and feel my belly, but they never once explained to me who they were precisely and what their role in my care was supposed to be until they started talking about the surgery they intended to do. After a few visits, it all started to sound the same. Can we operate on you now? How about now? Okay, if not now, how about an hour from now? Please, you'd really make us happy if we could operate on you. It eventually became clear that the surgery they were talking about was not strictly necessary. My colon has what's called a malrotation, a kink, basically. It's a birth defect, and I didn't know I had it until three days earlier, and it has nothing to do with what brought me to the hospital. On Sunday morning, when I was at my physical and emotional low, the subject came up yet again, explicitly. One of the ravens mentioned, the abdominal surgery you're looking at next week, and my growing exasperation with them boiled over. I said emphatically, we're going to have to talk about that, realizing only as I heard the sound of my own voice escaping that my tone was expressing what I was too polite to say in words. I am not letting any of you people come the fuck near me with a goddamn scalpel until I say that I fucking want you to. Got it? They heard me, and their reaction was not what I expected. It was not steely, redoubled resolution and the need to make the recalcitrant patient face difficult facts. Instead, their faces collectively fell as if they'd been told the ice cream truck was out of Dove Bars, and the subject dropped. I never heard about the abdominal surgery or saw the ravens again. I am not the first person to observe that time has little meaning in the hospital, and never less than in the ICU. You're there because you need to be continuously monitored, which means somebody is coming in all the time to check your vital signs, change IV bags, take blood samples, give you medication, empty your catheter bag, reconnect the leads on your heart monitor, and basically make sure you haven't croaked. I understood the rules, and I appreciated the attention because I was pretty sick. They were usually gentle about it. 
a tap at the door, a nurse softly calling my name and turning on a light, and then the trooping in of whomever needed to troop. It's just the way it is. You sleep when you can in shifts, since there's nothing else for you to do. The only time an interruption made me angry was on my last morning. I was out of the ICU and in a regular room where I'd had trouble sleeping, but at 6.15 a.m. I finally managed to get down. Suddenly, I was awakened by two residents and a nurse banging through my door. The room went from darkness to supernova in an instant as if it had been struck by lightning. I reacted as you would, scared out of my wits, heart pounding, panic breathing, choking out answers as they asked questions and felt my belly like all the rest. I had never seen any of those people before, and I have no idea even now who they were or why they were there. If any of them noticed or cared about the state they'd put me in, I couldn't tell. I'd had a cardiac episode only 48 hours earlier. Under those circumstances, you probably shouldn't do a man like that. I am lucky that this incident happened when it did. I live in Wisconsin, where hospitals are full to the brim with COVID-19 patients due to our state's miserable, politically-driven response to the virus. When I got sick, there was still room for me. The COVID patients were on a different wing of the ICU floor, but their presence was inescapable. COVID came up in conversation with the nurses a few times during my stay, but I didn't pursue the subject with them. That's because they all got a look when the word COVID was mentioned. It was a look unique to each one of them because each one of them was a unique individual, but it was at the same time a look they shared in common, haunted and haunting, like a soldier after combat or a police detective who's seen things you just shouldn't see. It's a look that says, you don't want to know. So because I respected them, I didn't ask about it. I'm sure that had I done so, they would have done their best to answer me, but because I respected them, I didn't ask about it. I relate to people, both friends and strangers, by making jokes. And I've always wondered if anything could happen to me that was so terrible I wouldn't make jokes about it. On Sunday morning, I thought I'd found it. I lay in my ICU bed as physically and emotionally low as I have ever been, waiting for another procedure to begin. I'd gone through some serious shit by then. Internal bleeding bad enough to require transfusions, dangerously low blood pressure, an episode of atrial fibrillation during which my heart hit 195 on the speedometer, and nothing to eat but jello for 72 hours. And I thought about dying. I'm not especially afraid of dying. I find comfort in the words of the Greek philosopher Epicurus. He said, where we are, death is not. Where death is, we are not. The worst thing about it to me is the likelihood that I will depart with things unfinished, words unsaid, loose ends untied. On that Sunday morning, however unlikely it was or melodramatic to consider it, I resolved that if I was going to die, I would accept it and try not to be afraid. They were going to do the procedure in my room, and a few minutes after 10 o'clock, the doctor breezed in and rallied his team. He said to them and to me, everybody ready? The last thing I said was, the Packer game kicks off at noon. You're on the clock. So yeah, there's nothing I won't joke about. Was the game on TV in my room when I woke up? Yes, it was. This is Wisconsin, and it's how we roll. Once I got home and started to write about this experience, I found that the hardest part was about the nurses. It's only now, weeks later, that I can talk about them without choking up. The doctors may have done the work that got me home, but to the extent that my life needed saving, it was the nurses who did it. They got me at my worst, and as responsive as they were to my physical needs, their real healing power was elsewhere. Scott and Lauren were with me Friday night through Sunday afternoon, and they were angels. Scott's unhurried calm, his dry sense of humor, and his deep compassion, which is something all of the nurses shared, are things I will never forget. Lauren's brisk and no-nonsense manner put me off a little bit on Friday night, 
But on Saturday night and early Sunday morning, when I was at my physical and emotional low, it was a steady hand on the wheel I needed. And it was more than just that. At one point around 3 a.m. on Sunday, Lauren told the Ravens to fuck off until later was something they wanted to do. I'm not going to let you do that to him now. It can wait. Her ferocity on my behalf made such an impression that later in the day, other nurses went out of their way to tell me about it. At another point during my stay, a different nurse told me that as a group, the ICU nurses tend to be less flummoxed and more flexible than the doctors, implying that the Ravens had been overreacting to something. She said, we see more things more often than they do. What that means is, any given nurse may have more experience with a particular set of vital statistics or symptoms than any given doctor. This seems especially likely to be true with veteran nurses compared to the Ravens, who were surgical residents still completing their training. In other words, Lauren was on solid ground, and her colleagues had her back. Scott and I share an interest in craft beer, and we share a favorite spot in our town to drink it. As he was leaving me on Sunday night, I thanked him for seeing me through, and I said to him that I hoped I would have the chance to buy him a beer someday. Then I said, but it'll be hard for me to recognize you since I've only ever seen the top of your face. He showed me the picture on his ID badge and said, this is me before COVID. Then he pulled his mask down. This is me now. His gesture was remarkably intimate, and I moved by it still. You probably don't know it, but I'm kind of a misanthrope. I believe that most individuals are good at least some of the time, but in the aggregate, it is the fate of the human species to fuck each other up and over. If you don't believe that's true, imagine me gesturing at absolutely everything around us right now. Bad people are everywhere, and they're winning a lot of the time. So please understand the magnitude of feeling in the following statement. The nurses and nurses' aides who took care of me give me faith in the perfectibility of humankind. It's possible. We don't have to be like this. Even as I say that, the misanthrope in me raises a hand and says, uh, that was their job? They were supposed to take care of you? You didn't see angels. You saw working people with their game faces on. And that's true as far as it goes. Everyone wears a face out in the world. Even if we wake up in the morning with murder in our hearts, we have to fake it with our families or co-workers and the rest of the humans because it's what we do to maintain a civilization. That said, I do not believe that Scott and Lauren and Carson, and Morgan, and Christy, and Joanna, and Jerry, and Brenda, and Kathy, and others whose names have escaped me already, were faking their deep compassion and concern. Loving kindness, the best word for what they showed me, cannot merely be a game face. It's something more. It has to be part of a person's essential makeup. Loving kindness is an old-fashioned word. The dictionary defines it as tenderness and consideration toward others. The meaning of it is best captured in a moment from Monday morning. I'd been in the ICU since Thursday night, and while I was starting to feel better, I still looked like the dog's breakfast. I was sitting up in a chair reading when Kathy came in, checked my vital signs, then walked over to me and, without a word, combed my hair. I didn't take the hat home with me when I was discharged, but I damn sure took that comb. In a time when families are forbidden to visit hospital patients because of COVID, the ICU nurses became my family. I will forever be grateful to them, and I love them all dearly. I said back at the start of this episode that I am someone who likes thinking about what stuff means. But now that I'm at the end, I've got no grand insights to leave with you, except to say that every experience should probably teach us something. They don't always, but this one did. In the hospital, I learned what a hat is. I learned that doctors aren't always right, but nurses usually are. And I learned that human beings can be better, because I've seen some of the best we're capable of. How could anyone experience that? and not feel changed. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will visit my website, The Hits Just Keep On Coming, which you can easily find by putting that phrase into your favorite search engine or by visiting thjkoc.net. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, I hope you will listen to other episodes of it. You can find an archive of past episodes at my website. Bookmark my SoundCloud or subscribe to my website to be notified about future episodes, should there be any more. If you'd like to kick in a few bucks to help defray the costs of producing this podcast and maintaining my website, there's a link where you can do that at my SoundCloud and in my podcast archive. You can also find this podcast at the usual places, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and Stitcher. If you're listening on a platform where you can give it a like or a positive review, I hope you will do that. This is Jim Bartlett. Thanks for listening.